Hi, I'm Nyla Boodoo, and welcome to Axios Recap, where we dig into one big story. I'll be your host for the next few weeks. It's Monday, October 4th. Today, Axios's politics reporter, Jonathan Swan, spoke to Afghanistan's ambassador to the U.S., Adela Raz, in an exclusive interview after the fall of Kabul. She grapples with her role as an ambassador essentially without a state and no real relationship with the Biden administration. Do you still believe in the United States? Do you still trust the United States? No. Sorry. I, I, I trust and believe the people. I mean, I've lost some trust. In, in the U.S. policies, and I think probably government policies, including my own leadership in government policies. And I'm reflecting and saying how effective I was, or I was, and I think it is a big question that I don't have the right type of answer. Jonathan Swan joins us after this. And we're joined now by Axios's political reporter, Jonathan Swan, who spoke recently with Adela Raz, Afghanistan's ambassador to the U.S. for Axios on HBO. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Jonathan, Afghanistan's ambassador to the U.S., Adela Raz, is still working in D.C. And I wanted to start by asking you what you started your interview with her with, which is, does she still consider herself the ambassador to the U.S.? And is she? Yeah, she she does consider herself the ambassador, and it's the most extraordinary situation. I first heard about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. A contact of mine said that they'd spoken to her and that she was in the most difficult situation. Basically, she's stateless. She has kept the embassy open, the Afghanistan embassy. She refuses to recognize the Taliban, so she's still flying the old tricolor Afghanistan flag. Obviously, she has no leader that she reports to because Afghanistan's president, Ashraf Ghani, fled the country in secret. And the the Biden administration is declining to meet with her. So she's representing a cause that is really a hopeless cause in many ways. And it's quite a painful situation for her. She's someone who's spent her whole adult life fighting for the rights of Afghan women and girls. And she's basically in the last month watched her life's work go up in flames. What was her response to President Biden saying that the U.S. still wants to advocate for the rights of women and girls there? She thinks it's pretty uh, cheap talk. She she doesn't give it much stock. You could see the anger when I read those quotes to her. I mean, she said she doesn't think Biden actually cares about the fate of Afghan women and girls. And she said, really, it's all talk because What leverage is the U.S. exerting over the Taliban? The Taliban's taken over the government. They've taken over the country. They've removed all women from government. They're now stopping women from going to school. All the gains of the last 20 years that she's been involved in working for are being erased right now. So, yes, the U.S. is making a lot of statements, but from her point of view, they're pretty empty. And what about President Biden's actions overall? What did she say about how the Biden administration handled the exit from Afghanistan? Well, she does acknowledge her own government failed. And she actually had very harsh words for her own leader, Ashraf Ghani. She she called it a betrayal. And she said he needs to face the Afghan people and explain himself. And she also said that the Afghan security forces were overly reliant on U.S. technical expertise and air support. And obviously they crumbled when the U.S. withdrew. But she had been begging the United States, both publicly and privately, to increase and strengthen military support to the Afghan security services. She felt like 
her pleas were falling on deaf ears. And the other thing is that she really wishes that the Biden administration had renegotiated a better deal with the Taliban, one that put conditions in place rather than just saying we're going to leave at the end of August without any conditions. She saw that as a betrayal, allowing the Taliban to reverse all of the the gains that have been made for Afghan women and society in the last 20 years. Can you give me a sense of what her role was like in the lead up to the withdrawal? Did she share sort of what that looks like when you are the ambassador, your Afghanistan's ambassador to the U.S. as this war is drawing to a close, what her conversations with the Biden administration were like? Was she consulted? I mean, her situation is just in in so many ways extraordinary. So she, when Trump was, and President Trump was, former President Trump was negotiating with the Taliban, she was um, actually Afghanistan's ambassador to the United Nations. She was the first woman to be in that role. She was only appointed the ambassador to the United States in Washington in July. Ghani sends her to Washington in July, and a month later, her country ceases to exist for all intents and purposes. So she basically spent the month that she was here in a frenetic scramble to try and convince the Biden administration to provide stronger military support, to prop up the government in Kabul, to defend Kabul. And so really, she did none of the normal things that an ambassador would usually do. She was meeting with the Pentagon. It was just a very, very fast and frenetic month. And of course, she was having to publicly project confidence in her government when, of course, privately, she had grave doubts about it. So she was just in a in a horrendous position. And grave doubts about the government. One of the reasons that she is in this position is because President Afshar Ghani fled. He left Afghanistan. Did she yeah. know that was going to happen? No, but interesting, she did um, make some news in the interview. She revealed new details to us that suggest Ghani's secret escape was more premeditated than is publicly known. So some of the reporting has suggested it was a spur of the moment thing from Ghani on the day of. He panicked, he fled, he thought they were in the palace. Her husband, Ambassador Raz's husband, was Ghani's chief of staff. So he was in the palace on the day of the secret escape and also leading up to it. He didn't know about it. But what he observed, and he told her this in real time, in the days leading up to August 15th, Ghani was having these very unusual secret meetings with two of his top aides. And Ambassador Raz's husband, she's in Washington with the two kids. He's back in Kabul in the palace. And he's telling her about this. And she actually says she joked sarcastically at the time while he's probably planning his evacuation. He almost certainly was. Like something of the logistical complexity of escaping in the helicopters with the two aides, that's not a spur of the moment thing. That that required real planning And it's likely that these were the meetings that transpired ahead of August 15th. What is her fate as, I mean, what is next for her as a sort of... It's uncertain. It's really uncertain. She feels she cannot bear to be the one to shut down the embassy. And she, you know, looks out the window and the flag's flying. And we had to stop the interview several times. She was crying, had to collect herself. She's got a skeleton staff. She had to lay some people off. Um, some of the local staff, they're running out of money. And she acknowledges at some point she's going to have to shut down the embassy. She doesn't want to do it. She lives in a rental property in Washington. The Afghan ambassador doesn't, the, the Afghan government doesn't own the residence. So her, 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 even her living situation is uncertain. It's uncertain whether she'll, she doesn't know whether she's going to apply for asylum. She thinks it's probably not safe for her to go back. 
it was a very painful interview. I, I found it a difficult interview to do because it was she was very vulnerable and I was just watching her grapple with this. She, she really doesn't have answers to a lot of these basic questions. She feels like her life has just kind of been taken away, everything she's worked for and fought for. It, it was a really challenging interview from that perspective. What are you left thinking about now after this interview? What what is what did it leave you thinking about? I'll be honest, it left me feeling pretty bleak. There's a decent chance she might be the last female ambassador that Afghanistan has. I mean, what's the scenario under which you see women going back to school in Afghanistan, women in government, basic rights for women, some of the other reforms that were made to Afghanistan? The Taliban has shown pretty clearly that despite the best wishes of some American officials, they haven't really changed. Ideologically, they're still the same Taliban that they were in the 1990s when they stopped Ambassador Raz when she was a young girl from going to school. They're the same Taliban. I finished the interview thinking, this is a country with a very dark future. And it's not clear to me how that will change. America is turning away. It's, it's trying to refocus, pivot to Asia. And the other thing that people aren't thinking about right now is Afghanistan is already experiencing a humanitarian crisis. People are starving. And we could see this spiral into one of the worst humanitarian crises anywhere in the world, including Yemen, with you know electricity shortages, food shortages, all sorts of uh, problems. And it's this really difficult situation because the world community has refused to acknowledge the Taliban, recognize them officially. There are sanctions on the Taliban, and yet there's this moral imperative to get aid and food to the Afghan people. They're trying to do that. The US government's trying to do that around the Taliban through NGOs. That's probably not possible. You probably actually, as she said, you're probably going to have to, uh, at some point, give money routed through the Taliban. So it's just a very complicated situation, and real people's lives are at stake. Jonathan Swan covers politics for Axios, and you can watch that whole interview with Ambassador Roz on Axios on HBO. Jonathan, thanks for giving us this backstory. Of course. Thank you. Welcome back. We're watching another story today out of Texas you might have missed, where dating apps are responding to the state's new abortion law with new features and even relief funds. OkCupid, which is owned by the Dallas-based Match Group, has launched a pro-choice badge that users can display. And for each badge, the company's donating a dollar to Planned Parenthood. Bumble, the dating app based in Austin, says it will also donate funds for those affected by the Texas law. You can hear lots more about that tomorrow on our morning podcast, Axios Today. And we're done. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we're back tomorrow with another Axios recap.